Oh, sorry. That's a throwback to the end of last week's episode. Ray had to wait five years. Oh, my God. Is is this the part where I say it was worth it? Because this has been recorded, right? (laughs) Yeah, she doesn't listen. I'm not sure what that says about you. I'm not sure if that's admirable or sad. I was in love. And mm, that's what mm, she wanted. And I wanted her. So, I don't know. Mm. I don't know. Mm. Well, getting back to uh, Boccaccio. Welcome back to the Renaissance, episode 26, by the way. Uh, Boccaccio, like Ray, had to wait five years to tap that ass. Uh, unlike Ray, he, he, you know, he invented the Renaissance in that period. Um, what did you do for that five years, Ray? Um, learned 27 different techniques for masturbation. Did you want the truth? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Watched a lot of uh, foreign films. Um, <laughs> cousins. Uh, yeah. French cousins. Uh, so just uh, as we said in the last episode, um, Boccaccio, when he's 18, sees Maria di Aquino, a.k.a. Fiametta, the little flame, in church. She's a couple of years older than him. She's probably 20, 21. Um, uh he falls madly in lust with her. He meets her 12 days later at a convent yeah. where she was brought up, where she went to bang guys. She's married, but she's banging bang, dudes bang. on the side at this convent. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the original bang bus as a convent. And um, she, she, he starts telling her all these sort of stories of lovers and he's trying to impress yeah. her as you do when you're 18. Yeah. And she says, you know what, you should write me a book about one of those stories. Did she said that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's like, tell you what, kid, uh, why don't you fuck off and write a, write me a novel? Yeah. And he does. Yeah. And it's known as the Philocolo, which means the one struck down by love. Oh, that's so sweet. Now, was that the one that was somewhere like in 1936, 37? Or when, or was that... There's a lot of books that this guy put out. I'm just trying to keep them all straight. Yeah, well, by the time he, like, finished it, Ah. it was probably 36, 37, 38. I mean, he meets her in 31. So it takes him five, six years to finish it. He's probably giving her chapters along the way. Um, uh, And it's considered to be the first novel of Italian literature written in prose. Interestingly, uh, not very well appreciated up until the late 20th century. Right. Um, Considered, you know, uh, to be not one of his great works for most of that time. He's just getting started. But, um, well, that's that's true too. But these days it actually gets a lot more respect. Um, I don't know. Have you you had a crack at reading it? I tried to read it um, and got... Lost, but then I, I basically read a review that said it was a long and dreary pose version of of a medieval romance, Fleur et Blanc Fleur, like you were saying earlier. I didn't get the part about um, the the girl had to disguise her Roman heritage. Did did you go through any of the story? 
I started reading it and, yeah, I got, I don't know, like 10 pages in it and we're like, oh, fuck, I can't do this. Um, As opposed to the Decameron, which is fantastic. I love the Decameron. Right. His later work. But, uh, yeah, no, this one I really couldn't get into. Uh, The Philostrato I enjoyed more. Mm -hmm. Anyway, let's get into it. Right. So, yeah, but it's important, as I said, it's considered the first novel of Italian literature written in prose, which is huge. Right. Because um, he overheard his dad with his feet up on his slave one night going, fuck, I wish I had a book to read. And he went, no, no problems, Papa, I gotcha. Yeah. Now can I stop studying canon law? He said, no. And he's like, fuck. Um, so it's the story uh, of Florio, the son of the king of Spain, and Bianca Fiore, Blanche Flores, written in a lot of different ways, right. depending on the language and the story, who's some orphan that he's in love with. They, they kind of grow up together. They get separated. They have a lot of adventures where he goes out looking for her and she goes out looking for him. No. Then they find each other and they're reunited. And there's, this story influenced uh, Chaucer and, and Billy Shakespeare and many others. Yeah. Like it becomes sort of one of the key uh, um, stories that gets told and retold in – Poetry and novels and operas and films yeah. It's for, for, for centuries, right? It's angst. It's wanting. It's um, the build-up to the end. I mean, yeah, it's, it's pretty much the, the basis for all the love stories that come after it. And, and, and remember, too, as I said um, at the beginning of the last episode, literature for the masses is a new thing. It's being invented right. at this point in time. The What books existed before this tended to be, you know, churchy <clears throat> books in Latin right. or, or, you know, there the, the just wasn't really anything written about the people, for the people, by the people. That wasn't a genre of literature. Right. You just didn't do that. A, because no one could fucking read, so why do it? Um it just hadn't happened before. So he's inventing this kind of literature. Petrarch's out there writing his poems, mm-hmm. um, and Boccaccio is writing love stories. Yeah. He's inventing the fucking love story in front of our eyes here. That's pretty impressive. Because he's trying to get into this chick's pants. Yeah. And, and, and this is one of the things I love about this study. Like, we think of the Renaissance. Like, you go to fucking Florence, as we just did, and you go through the galleries and the museums and everything, and it's all about, oh, it's high art and high yeah, this, and isn't Jesus. it beautiful? And you, yeah. yeah, you see the Da Vinci's and you see the David sculptures and you see the art and you think it's all this, um, you know, this 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 inspired works right. of genius, and it and, and it is. But it got started because Petrarch and and Boccaccio were trying to get into this chick's pants, <laughs> and that's universal. Yeah. 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 Like that, the the, the the Renaissance started because these guys wanted to get their dicks wet. Bunch of eighteen year olds, and yeah, 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 yeah. And I've always said, and uh, you know, I've always said that that getting your dick wet, getting laid, is the basis of everything men ever do. Ever, amen, brother. Any any accomplishment men have in. Um, and I'm not singling out men here. I'm just talking about men for now. It's probably the same for women, but certainly for men. Everything any man ever does in the field of business or the arts yeah. or, or sport or, or literature, 
every accomplishment, every Nobel Prize that's ever been won, the guy did it because he was trying to get his dick wet. Yeah. Fuck love of science or, you know, <laughs> curiosity. Yeah. I, yeah. Einstein, I guarantee you, when Einstein was coming up with E equals MC squared, he in the back of his head he's like, I am so going to get laid when I yeah. come out with this. It's just I'm going to have pussy hanging from was, the fucking rafters no. when I come out with this. He was trying to impress the girls in the patent office where he worked, and uh, it didn't work out for that, but he did um, do something wonderful for the rest of us human beings. And he did get laid did get, like a motherfucker. He got married, yeah, yeah. He yeah. tapped it yeah, up against yeah, the wall. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Okay, so to getting back to... Filagolo, um, Boccaccio and Maria appear in this novel, thinly disguised. As I said before, she's she's often referred to as uh, Fiametta, mm-hmm. uh, the Italian for little flame. Um, and he's always playing the character, you know, he's disguising himself in the novels and the rest of his works as the character that's in love with her. He writes in this one that her teeth were as white as eastern pearls. Her lips were living rubies, clear and red. Her cheeks, roses mixed with lilies. Her hair, all gold, like an aureola about her happy face. That's hot. She was like, dude, fucking back off, man. You're, like, creeping me out here. Like, give it a rest, kid. Um <laughs> Anyway, uh, yes, yeah. over to you. No, just a quick question. So so he spent some years in, uh, in Naples. And uh, so around uh, 1332, age 19 or so, um, this is when he um, hasn't gotten her yet. He goes to Paris where he continues his education. Um, he, uh, he mingles with the educated people there. He spends time in the Royal Library. He's studying classical Latin literature, provincial and old French romances, mythology, astrology, history, magic, and alchemy. And I was I was a bit um, surprised when I read about magic uh, and, and astrology. But then I remember there there were certainly things that Petrarch um, subscribed to, whether it was dreams or being able to tell the future or magic. If you had to compare the intellect of Petrarch and Boccaccio, to me, I, Bocca- and I just wanted to nail this down a little bit because Boccaccio seems to be more superficial than Petrarch because Petrarch's asking some weighty questions. Boccaccio, even though he's still young at this age, is pretty much just trying to impress a woman that's a couple of years older than him. And, uh, and so when he's coming up with these stories, he's, it's, it's all for a single goal. I just get the sense that he is not the, he's not going to end up being the intellectual equivalent of Petrarch. Would you agree with that? I mean, I no, don't know. Not at all, man. Really? Oh man! With the, particularly the stuff he produces later in life, it's um, astounding. It, it the is. work that he did and the research behind it and the inventiveness uh, of behind his latter okay. works is is massive. Because just because someone's a, meant- a great writer and they re and they rework the logic and science and constructs of writing, does that? I mean, I certainly I certainly grant him all that and it makes him brilliant. But I was just trying to, in my own head, compare him to Petrarch, who is, it's who seemed to be asking more weighty questions of the world. I think the big difference is, um, you know, Petrarch's writing is high art. Petrarch deliberately was trying to um, be the modern, in his day, equivalent of Virgil. Uh, He's trying to write 
high art for the ages. Boccaccio's trying to write fucking pulp fiction (laughs) slutty novels about slutty (laughs) chicks because he can't get his dick wet. And he's, 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 it's like, okay, here's a film analogy. Petrarch is um, uh, 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 Martin Scorsese. He's trying to produce Uh, high art art. film. Gotcha. Boccaccio is Quentin Tarantino. (laughs) It's motherfucking nigger, murder, um, you know, sex scene, rape, raping women with a coma who are in a coma. Oh god. Um, but does that mean Scorsese is a better filmmaker than Tarantino? No, I just think there's different okay. different genres. Right. Um both absolutely magnificent uh, filmmakers who made numbers of masterpieces and will be remembered forever for mm. their contributions to cinema. All right. That makes sense. Thank you. Now he he and Petrarch first started corresponding around about 1334. This is when Boccaccio first reads some of Petrarch's writing and it has a huge effect on him. They don't meet until 1350. Right. Um, and, and, you know, we'll talk about that later on. But during this period, he's still trying to just get into Maria's pants. Right. Maria, I just want to fuck... This Maria, and she won't let me in. She <laughs> says it is a sin, but no. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Apologies to Leonard Bernstein for that. Um, <clears throat> so he's right. He writes this Philocolo. She says, "Listen, go write a go write me a book. Yeah. When you finish, come back and you know maybe we'll I'll see. let you sleep with me." Right. So he goes and does it. Um, now during this period. Uh, uh, you know, he, he is massively in love with it. It's all he can think about. Uh, he can't think about his studying, so he finally quits studying canon law and just decides to dedicate himself to uh, pussy and poetry. <laughs> pussy and writing is basically. Um, now, during this period also, he starts work on the Philostrato, mm-hmm. which is actually a poem uh, combination of Greek and Latin words, apparently, philostrato. It means laid prostrate by love. Aww. That's sweet. Philo, love, strato, yeah. l- lying down. Um, and, and this story also it goes way back uh, to Homer's Iliad, um, the two characters, Troilus and Cressida. Now, Minor characters in the Iliad, he takes them and builds a whole story around them. Ah. But the, the strange thing about this is he hadn't read Homer's Iliad. Ah. Nobody had read Homer's Iliad. Because it was missing. In a, no, because it was in Greek. Ah. And none of these guys could read Greek. It doesn't get translated into Italian for another 20 years, and it's Boccaccio that makes that happen. So, so <clears throat> they... Yeah. So how does he know? I guess he just knows the basics through verbal, through someone telling him the general story since he hasn't been able to read it, word of mouth. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, I'm assuming something like that is the case. There may be... Somebody had written uh, some sort of an analysis or treatment or something based on the Iliad, but it was written in Latin and so they could read it, but it's not the Iliad itself. Gotcha. <clears throat> Because, you know, people would write commentaries or, or that kind of thing. I'm sure there were commentaries from 
ancient Rome written in Latin about the Iliad, mm-hmm. mentions of it, and, and that he'd read those. Anyway, so again, it's about traffic lovers, tragic lovers from the opposite sides of the tracks. In this case, he's a Trojan, she's a Greek, Ooh. a bit like the Philocolo, but, you know, different. It's, it's the Romeo and Juliet, right. right? So Shakespeare, you know, takes these, these, these themes that Boccaccio expanded upon and he, he, he rehashed them, he remixed them. Basically, Boccaccio is the first person to write an entire story with these love, you know, star-crossed lovers from the wrong side of the tracks as main characters. Right. Do we want to talk about the story at all? Are we just analyzing it? Just like you said, just covering um, star-crossed lovers. Uh, But again, he's trying to impress this young woman. And I think it is worth noting that this, when he started writing this, like you said, it was loosely based on the Les Romans de Troy, a 12th century poet who wrote about the Trojan War. So he's taking this, picks some basic characters, and then develops an entire entire story around them. So it is coming up with something new. And this is, his, his work here is considerably better than the first story that we talked about a couple of minutes ago. So he is getting better. Yeah, and if you want to dip into reading Boccaccio, I would recommend start with the Decameron, which we'll get to, which is his best-known masterpiece. But definitely check out the Philostrato. I, I've enjoyed it. I haven't finished it, but I'm halfway through it. I'm really enjoying it. It's, um, very, yeah, it's, it's enjoyable. Right. It's very well written in terms of poetry. Um, so anyway, he's still trying to get into Maria's pants. Right. Now, as, around about 1336... Uh-huh. He's invited to go on vacation with her and a group of her friends to a house that her husband now owns near her old convent Ooh. in a place called Baia. Right. Baia, Baia, Baia. It's like a, you know, convent-y resort village. Uh, this was her gotcha. thing. She'd go away there a few times a year with a group of her friends. They'd party, they'd fuck, they'd drink. Um, and she has apparently given him hope that he might be able to get into her pants now that he's written this book. Nice. But not quite yet. Right. It takes another 135 days. Oh. Not that anyone's counting, except him. <laughs> and he tells us. Now, this is where it gets a little bit fucking creepy. Right. Right. <clears throat> Did you read the story about how he ended up getting into her pants? No. I did want to go into his, and, and you can tell me when you want to do this, but... His atti- you wrote a single line on Facebook that I read, I picked up on it, and so it, it kind of f- focused my thinking as I was doing the research. But between what happens in his stories, a quote I have of his, and what happens in his real life, he seems to have a very intense love-hate relationship with women that does get creepy over the course of his career. Mm. But no, please tell me the story. Well, <clears throat> mm. Well, yeah. So again, we, we only know this story because he writes about yeah. it in one of his works, mm-hmm. and uh, some scholars assume that what he's talking about is how he ended up sleeping with uh, Maria the first time. Um. So, <laughs> yeah, the story is that. 135 days after they party at the convent, he he just can't take it anymore. So while her husband is away, he has he bribes one of her maids to 
sneak him into Maria's bedroom when she's not there. And he hides himself behind the curtains in the room. Right. Then Maria comes in with her maid. Maid undresses her, gets her ready for bed, puts her into bed, and then leaves. Tell me more about that. Half lying. No, sorry, go ahead. Half lying, half laughing, half crying in the poem because mm. um, she knows that he's hiding in the room. Boccaccio then waits until Maria is asleep. Ugh. This is entering Prince then he territory. Crawl- uh-huh. Then he crawls into bed beside her. Puts his arms around her. Sure. And then she she wakes up, sees him there, starts to cry out, but he says he shut her mouth with kisses. That's still not right. Now, she tries to escape and get out of bed, but he holds her tightly, doesn't let her. Then she told him that he was wasting his time. She wasn't going to give up the (laughs) pussy. Which is French. Basically, I'm going to keep my legs crossed. Right. <laughs> so mother was French. She says, you know, you're wasting your time. You're not going to get in there because I'm not going to let you in. Right. And so he gets out of bed, takes a dagger out of his belt. Sure. And says, Uh-oh. I come not, O lady, to defile the chastity of thy bed, but as an ardent lover to obtain relief for my burning desires. Thou alone canst assuage them, or tell me to die. Surely I will only leave thee satisfied or dead. Not that I seek to gratify my passion by violence or to compel any to raise cruel hands against me. But if thou art deaf to my entreaties, with my dagger I shall pierce my heart. Has he not heard of the Me Too movement? That's rape. That is now, the threat of violence and rape. Well, no, he's saying, I'm not going to rape you, mm. but if you don't fuck me right now, I'm going to kill myself. That's still... Now... Yeah, yeah. yeah. She didn't want a dead man in a room. Who does? Um, for, for one, Wu's pigs were already full. <laughs> and two, it's fucking hard to get a blood stain out of the carpet. It really is. So... She asked him why he loved her, and he told her the long story of all of the years of waiting and hoping, seeing her in the church, writing all this poem. You know, basically, he's an emo fucking tragic loser right. dude. And then, and then. <laughs> right. Co- co-inventor of the Renaissance. Um, <laughs> again, he asks her if he should kill himself. And according to this story, uh, she takes the dagger from him and throws it away and he falls on her and she fucks him. Oh, that's not And hot. then they're lovers. Right. Well, mm, it's hot for him. Then they're lovers for about, a, <laughs> they're lovers for about a year. Yeah. A year to two years after this. Hiding it from her husband, of course. Right. Um, when he goes away, when they go to the convent in alleys, I don't know where they're fucking doing it. You know how it works. Right. Um, in the bathroom at the office. Um, <laughs> maybe that's just me. Um, so it's so then after a year or so, she starts to grow cold and distant. Um, in 1338, she tells him he can't go 
to the country house on vacation with her because her husband's getting suspicious. Right. Um, and while she's away, she takes on a new lover and his sorry ass is dumped. Oh, snap. Now, I had heard that, and a part of the equation was that he had spent a lot of, if not most of his money, and he didn't have as much as he used to. And that was one of her prerequisites besides physically satisfying her, was buying her nice things. So uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's the uh, the case. Maybe he should have just whipped out his knife again. But either the money or the sex or the whatever, the creepy factor, it's for all that build up, it doesn't last very long. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's a year or two. But yeah, now, ironically, um, in the Philostrato, which he started before she dumped him, Cressida dumps Troilus, the two main characters, the woman dumps the man for another man. He kind of predicted it. Ah. Probably saw it coming. I mean, she had a history. Like she, she, she was banging dudes. Two to a dozen, right? For years. So boom, boom. But he's heartbroken. And anyway, he decides he's not going to give up. He's going to win her back by writing more love poetry. Um, And he spends the rest of his life basically pining for her. Spoiler alert, never gets back in her pants again. I was going to say he got further with a knife than he did with a pen, but who's? I'm not encouraging (laughs) that. I'm not encouraging that. Yeah. The knife is mightier than the pen, as uh, Ray's motto. Listen, and that's like to to what do you what what do we call those guys now who um, we've done some no we've done some stories about these tragic oh, fuckers oh, yeah, on uh, the, the um, bullshit filter show. Oh um, shit! In in these guys in, that in in cells in cells in cells. Yeah, he was the original <laughs> incel. That's not Could, sex. <laughs> he was like, she won't sleep with me, so I'll threaten to kill myself, yeah. and then she'll sleep with me. Um, now, whether she slept with him for the next year or two because she enjoyed it, because she just didn't want to have to get a blood stain out of the carpet, who right. knows? Yeah. Maybe she was just worried he was going to – maybe it was, he was like, you know, if you don't sleep with me tomorrow, I'll kill myself in your room and I'll leave a suicide note that says you made me do it. Um, who knows? That was probably but the again, worst again, year of her life. Go ahead. The fascination for me, again, is this is one of the fathers of the Renaissance. And if this story is true, and again, this is just, uh, you know, he writes about this in one of his works and and some scholars uh, believe that, uh, you know, he's talking about how he ended up sleeping with Maria. Um, If this is true, then this is uh, amazing to me that one of the co-fathers of the Renaissance was this fucking disturbed and, and messed up. This might not be the place or the time, but I've always wanted to uh, to actually ask you this question. If you have somebody who invents something or creates something that is wonderful, but they themselves are very bad people. Let's say that we find out years from now that Steve Jobs was uh, someone who went around and killed people and, and ate their body parts and whatever. I don't know. but Or someone like Elon Musk, let's say he goes on to do great things and we find out that he was a serial killer or whatever. Can you separate the person from their accomplishment? Like, it should be pointed out, what what you're saying about him, it should be pointed out, but... Do we 
does it lessen his accomplishment? Do we have the right to judge him? Or do we just take it all together and say, this was just the way it was? I've, I've always wondered about that. People who do amazing things, but turn out to be real shits in their personal life. Uh, that, that kind of thing has always just fascinated me. Yeah, we talked about that on the Bullshit Filter mm. News Show last okay. week uh, about Louis C.K., right? now, right. I, And, like, most most great artists are fucked up. Most most rock stars and great actors and filmmakers and, and painters, you know, Van Gogh was a fucking mess. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, you, you, there's always the thing these days with Woody Allen. Should you go watch a Woody Allen film if he's, yeah. a, if he's a child molester or rapist or whatever? Um, as some accusations suggest. Um, the way I think it breaks down for me is um, if you're um, – if by supporting that artist you are enabling them mm. to do – to commit more crimes, uh, like, for example, uh, uh, if Michael Jackson was a child molester, and apparently the evidence for that is quite thin, but if he was right. – by, and by buying his records, you're enabling him to continue to do that. That's where the question of ethics comes into it. Um, if the person is dead, then I think, yeah, you can separate the art that they produced from the tragic fucking mess of a life that they lived mm. um, and, and be ethically sound in appreciating the great beauty that was created from a place of personal darkness, which just unfortunately is how it quite often works. People who produce great things are quite often a fucking mess. Right. But the flip side of that is if, the, if this, and we'll just use uh, Boccaccio here, if it wasn't for the way he, as we're going to find out in the rest of this episode, next episode seems to have an opinion about women, maybe he wouldn't have been able to create what he did without being that type of person. So maybe it's something you can't separate it. It's part and parcel of, of the whole thing. But uh, yeah, that, that kind of stuff is just always fascinating. And for most of these people, we don't find out until long after they're dead. And so it doesn't really affect us in that way. Cause you know, who, who I wonder what was known about this guy while he was still alive. And and also I have to point out that this is the only story I found out about him that where he comes across as a creepy scumbag. Um, there's nothing else that uh, I, I read that indicates in his personal life he was doing that kind of stuff. Well, I was not like he was. He was a serial rapist, right? But but there are going to be other stories where he gives some very intense um, attitude as far as women in general. But there was, you know, I looked up a bunch of quotes of his and one of them I just copied down and it just said, while farmers generally allow one rooster for 10 hens, 10 men can scarcely, can, can scarcely suffice to service one woman, basically calling either a particular woman or all of them whores. And so, but, but as I was going on and I was reading some of his other stories or summaries of them, I mean, there, there is some stuff out there where he's really does seem to be anti-woman and maybe he was just frustrated. He spent five years chasing her. He finally gets it. It doesn't last relatively too long. He spends a lot of his money on her. He's probably unhappy, unsatisfied. How could he not be affected by that? And it affect his writing for the rest of his life. It's interesting. I, I didn't pick up that he was anti-woman any more than anyone was, any man was in mm -hmm. the 14th century. Okay. I mean, he, he spent his life writing love poetry. 
I mean, you can't be anti-woman and writing love poetry. Okay, well, I'll, as we go through the stories, I'll point stuff out. There's no reason to jump ahead, but there was just stuff that just really came across as anti-woman to me, but, but we can discuss it as it pops up. But also, yeah, let's do that. But also keep in mind that he's writing stories about characters that might be anti-woman. That ah. doesn't necessarily mean that he is. He's reflecting the the times and the people of the times. Right. He's right. Like, you know, because um, uh, 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 fucking uh, who wrote American Psycho, whatever his name was, Brett, El- Brett Easton Ellis, if he writes a story about a stockbroker that's running around murdering homeless people and prostitutes, right. doesn't mean that he's actually advocating murdering prostitutes and, sure. and homeless people. I mean, he's... He's telling a story. Uh, so, you know, we have to figure out where the dividing line is here. Okay. Anyway, so um, he tries to win her back, never succeeds. Now, unfortunately for Maria, she was an accomplice in the 1345 murder of King Andrew, oh, the husband of her niece and Robert's successor, Queen Joanna I. Now, this is a good story. I want to tell this story because, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, we have to talk about the politics and all these things are going on the time. It's going to be part of this series. And this is a great story. Did you read this story, the, the succession of Queen Joanna? I, I did. Uh, I didn't run across her part of it, but I certainly did uh, cover the story about all the drama and the backstabbing and you don't know who and the other Pope gets involved. You can't trust anybody. <laughs> yeah, so Joanna was the fourth surviving the fourth child of Charles the Duke of Calabria who was the eldest son of King Robert the Wise of Naples right. so she is the only surviving grandchild right. um, or, or, or offspring of King Robert when he dies her her, her father King Robert's brother's dead all of his other children are dead um, so she's the only grandchild of the eldest son of the king. Her mother was Marie of Val- Valois, the sister of King Philip VI of France. So her father died when she was a baby, and when King Robert dies, she's you know the left in in his will as his um, heir to the throne. Right. Now, the other claimant to the throne would be Andrew, who was the youngest son of Robert's nephew, Charles I of Hungary. So to, so to head off any problems there, um, and in fact, Andrew's claim to the throne might be stronger than Joanna's or even Robert's mm-hmm. because of the background between these royal families and Naples and that kind of stuff. Robert did the only natural thing. He arranged the marriage of Joanna yeah. to Andrew. Back in 1334, her yeah. So hopefully no one... Cousin, sorry, go ahead. cousin once removed or something. It's hot. Uh, it's hot. First, <laughs> it's very Virginia. <laughs> now, how old were they when they got married, Ray? Oh, um, that I don't know because they're betrothed back in 1334. Were they married back? No, they actually... Yeah, they actually got married, I read, in 1333. Oh, God. Okay. So, but but you're when right. When she was King Robert is trying to tie when she this was, up, so no one, so there's no war when he dies. They got married when she was six years old <laughs> and he was five. <laughs> okay. 
Now, Robert died 10 years later in 1343. So Joanna was only 16 and her husband, Andrew, was 15. God. And in his last will and testament, Robert formally bequeathed his kingdom to Joanna and makes no mention (laughs) of Andrew, even as a consort. Right. So he's trying to exclude that branch of the family from any real power. Now, he leaves Naples under the control of a regency council until Joanna comes of age, which is only going to be a year or so anyway. Um, but this regency was useless. And, and Robert was trying to keep the Pope out of power in Naples. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and again, this is a big part of Italy in this period, which we'll get into more during the series. But who's with the Pope? Who's against the Pope? Who's aligned with you know, France, monarch, right. French monarchy versus the Pope, et cetera, et cetera? We've touched a little bit on that, I think, in the Petrarch episodes. Yeah. But um, So the Pope, uh, who's Clement IV at the time, he's the fourth Avignon Pope. Uh, the Regency Council are useless, so the Pope sends a legate, Cardinal Amory de Chateloux, uh, to Naples to sort of try and take control of uh, Joanna and affairs there. Almost immediately... The royal court is involved in a whole series of violent political struggles. Uh, on one side, you've got members of the Angevin house, the, the, the Anjou, the French, who were the closest relatives of King Robert's three brothers. Mm-hmm. So there's this big battle, the house of Anjou against the Neapolitans, and then you've got the, 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 the Pope involved. Anyway, Joanna manages to survive all of this until she turns 18, um, and in 1344 she is crowned by the Pope as the Queen of Naples. Andrew is present, <laughs> is, give, is given the title of king, but isn't crowned. Yeah. So he's basically king by, fact, by benefit of the fact that he's the husband of the Queen, but he's excluded from the government yeah. and isn't given any power. No positions, no power, no troops. And so Andrew is going to start bitching right away. And he's going to bitch to his mom. But his mom just isn't anybody. She is Elizabeth of Poland, who is currently the regent in that country. And she writes that she, that Andrew writes to her that he fears for his life. So mama is going to do something about this. Did you, did you read about her state visit and his magical ring? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so uh, Queen Elizabeth comes, she makes a state visit, but on her way home, because she knows how the game works, she may or may not, but probably did, bribed Pope Clement, because he is soon going to change his position and go, you remember when I said that she could be crowned sole regent? Yeah, I changed my mind. I think Andrew should get a, a coronation as well. But before Elizabeth leaves her son, Andrew, she gives him a magic ring, one ring to rule them all. And this ring says that he can he is protected from death by by blade or by poison. So he is now safe. She goes back to uh, Poland where she belongs. And Joanna has, has had her coronation. But now it's time for Andrews to have his. But the people who are supporting her are pissed at the Pope. And they're pissed at Andrew that he is going to be able to be her equal on the throne. And they're not very happy about it. Now, one thing about this ring she gave mm-hmm. him, um, when he put it on, apparently he had to say this... In brightest day, in blackest night, no evil shall escape my sight. 
let those who worship evil fight. Beware my power, Green Lantern's light. See, there you go. You didn't know that, but King Andrew was actually one of the Green Lanterns. But if he didn't finish saying that before the sword went all the way through him, kind (laughs) of didn't matter. Yeah. No, he only had to say it once. Um, Unfortunately, turns out he forgot to activate the ring (laughs) because, uh, yeah, it didn't end well for Andrew. So the Pope changed his mind, as you said, when um, Andrew's mother... Bribed him. Joanna wrote to the Pope to say, what the actual fuck, dude? I thought we had a deal. I bribed you first. He replied, yeah, he replied that um, it's okay. Andrew's going to get crowned, but only you will be blessed by God. Thanks for fucking So don't worry, I've got to, you know, get out of jail free card here. Um, I can take the Queen of Poland's money, sorry, Queen of Hungary's money, uh, but still... You know, get you out here. Right. I'm going to crown him, but you're the one, only one. Anyway, it's, it's a big fucking mess. There we go. Now, when um, Joanna's supporters uh, heard about the fact that the Pope was going to crown Andrew, right. they uh, decided to take matters into their own hands. So during a hunting trip in 1345, sure. Andrew left his room in the middle of the night Probably to pee. <laughs> I mean, he probably had a chamber pot. I don't know why. I mean, it's a, it's not to pee. Um, probably to get some. Yeah. Uh, who knows? Yeah. Uh, maybe he left his magic lantern in another room, <laughs> and he had to go and recharge his right. his power ring. Anyway, they he gets he gets captured by these uh, conspirators. Um, a servant. Bars the door behind him, oh. locks Joanna in the bedroom. Right. Um, Andrew uh, fights uh, uh, against these guys, apparently screams for help. Nobody comes to his uh, aid. He's finally strangled with a cord. Damn. And, and flung from a window with a rope tied around his genitals. No. Why? Okay. Now, I, you know, I decided to Mythbusters this shit, right? Because I'm not sure right. that my genitals could support my body weight. I, I concur. Uh, so I, I tried this. I tied a rope <laughs> around my own genitals and, and supported it uh, with a, a, an intricate system of pulleys and tried to pull myself up by my genitals. That's my that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Uh, it was purely in the name of historical right, research. Sure. And Please tell me there's a video. I found that I, I didn't get very far. Um, <laughs> shocked. I'm shocked. I like to think that they threw him out the window with a rope tied around his genitals, and then it just pulled off and he hit in the ground. They went, oh, oh. shit. Fuck, I thought that would that's work. That's- Did anyone... who? Who did the maths on this? Like yeah, someone? Yeah. What? Steve, that didn't work. You said it was going to work. We <laughs> believed you. We took the time to take his pants down, tie the cord around his genitals, and it did work. We're not listening to Steve anymore. Now, why strangle a guy first and then throw him out the window with a rope tied around his balls? I mean, I don't. <laughs> where's the fun in that? Like, if you're going to do that, do it while he's still alive. Why? Right. 
do that after he's dead. Does it matter once he's dead? But my philosophy has always been, if you're going to kill a king, take at least three different ways to do that. Because you want to make sure he's dead. Because if he survives, he's coming back after you. And he's going to have all the powers of a king. No, I, I think they, they strangled him just because they probably caught him in the hallway. They threw him out the window to maybe make it look like it was an accident because there's going to be broken bones. The cords around the <laughs> testicles. Buddy, you've got me. I think It's that- an accident. It's an accident. So what happened? No, 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 you don't understand. See, what happened was... <laughs> he took a left He was when he should have taken a right was, to go to the bathroom. Yeah. yeah. You know how Michael Hutchins, the lead singer of NXS, died supposedly because he, he tied a rope around his own neck while he was jerking off. <laughs> as you do. Um, and then a- accidentally strangled himself. The same as um, David... Um, what's his face from Kill Bill? Um, Carrie? Who was... Who was Kill David Carradine, yeah. I didn't know that. Or if I Car- did, I forgot. Yeah. David Carradine and Michael Hutchins both died from, um, you know, s- uh, what do they call it? Some sort of self-asphyxiation. Oh, right. um, here's from uh, ABC News. Actor David Carradine was found dead in the closet of a Bangkok hotel room Thursday with a cord wrapped around his neck and genitals. Oh. Leading Thai police to suspect his death was not a suicide, but an accident resulting from dangerous sex practices. You gotta be careful. Autoerotic asphyxiation there is we what go. they call it. That's not on my bucket list. Now, go ahead. Ironically, Garradine was in Thailand shooting his latest film, Stretch. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> How apropos. Yeah, like uh, he was trying to stretch it, right. and um, he didn't tell yeah, himself his ex-wife. Word. Go ahead. His his ex-wife said he had a history of deviant uh, sexual practices. So yeah, Michael Hutchins, lead singer of In Excess, allegedly died in similar circumstances. I am not uh, he. He was found naked hanging from a leather belt in his Sydney hotel room with pornographic literature at his feet and no suicide note. So I think that's what they were trying to uh, uh, achieve with with Andrew. He was really just trying to jerk off with a rope and then accidentally fell out of a window (laughs) while he was doing it. Apparently, the Marquis de Sade uh, described, you know, tying off uh, one around your neck uh, in his 1791 novel Justine. Okay, and it's called it's called doing a Justine, oh. <laughs> uh, self self strangulation. I'm going to check that out. The local Hi- hypoc- uh. oh. um, I'm sure quite a few of our listeners are into uh, this. You're probably doing it right um, now while they're listening to us. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I like to listen to our shows, is I try and strangle myself while I'm doing it. I'm thinking probably some of our listeners in Germany. It's usually the Germans or the Austrians that are most into this. I'm thinking of one of our listeners in particular. Not point, not no, mentioning any names, no, cause, Ulrich. Because you don't want to break his um, concentration. <laughs> It'll send him over the edge too soon. It's really what I'm worried about. Be like, no, oh, um, nine. Oh. <laughs> you ruined nine. my evening. Anyway. Oh, God. Anyway, um, how did we get I on don't... with this? Oh, Andrew, yes. 
So then his Hungarian nurse, Isolde, um, apparently chased the murderers away. Um, bit late, if you ask me. Um, she takes she takes his corpse right. then to uh, a church uh, where there are monks, looks after it all night. Then when Hungarian knights arrive, she tells them what happened in their mother tongue oh. so no one else would learn about it. They leave Naples telling everything to the Hungarian king. Um, Andrew's father, I guess, or whatever. So anyway, apparently... The Queen Joanna was was uh, um, alleged to have been involved in this. Obviously, she and Andrew weren't very close. Right. And, um, but she gets acquitted of being involved in the assassination twice in her lifetime. But for some reason, Boccaccio's muse Maria was supposedly involved. And um, after Joanna's dead, Joanna goes on and lives another forty odd years. Mm-hmm. When she finally dies. Uh, in uh, 1382, Maria di Aquino is arrested for her involvement in the assassin- in the murder of Andrew. Oh, She's sentenced to death and beheaded on the orders of Queen Joanna's successor, King Charles III of Naples. And, and just to be clear, because I thought she died earlier, are we talking about Little Flame, that Maria? Yeah. Oh, my God. Kinky. Kinky boots. This woman is, she's into everything. Yeah. Damn. So that's what happens to the um, Boccaccio's muse eventually. She lives many, many years. He doesn't get his dick wet in there again. She ends up getting beheaded. And he's actually quite friendly with Joanna, Boccaccio, that is. He goes to Naples, becomes friends with her. She was a big admirer of poets and poetry, and it was at her urging that he wrote the Decameron. Oh my God! As the world, so turns. let's yeah, yeah. Um, oh God, what are we? Fifty minutes in. Well, let's leave the Decameron for the next episode. I guess that okay. um, seems like a, a a nice place to stop it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that is, uh, the story of, uh, Joanna and Andrew and Maria de Aquino. Um, I know, right? Like fucked up. So, so fucked up. I feel better about myself Um, and my, and my life choices. (laughs) Really? Yeah. 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 I mean, I didn't, I didn't help with the Renaissance or anything, but yeah, I'm not going to be beheaded. Probably. For things I've done, yeah, you might you, know, you might get thrown out of the window with a rope tied around your dick. There's always a possibility. If, Once Heather finds out about all the shit that you've uh, only, been up to, yeah, that's true. Thanks for pointing that <laughs> out only. to me. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, bear with me. I'm going to read. I'll see if we have any reviews. We better. Ah oh, man. People and fucking reviews. Like, what do we have to do? Whose dick do we have to suck to get people to write some reviews for us, man? Seriously. Well, if that's the case, there's a couple of people already who should have written, never mind. (laughs) And that was just a Europe trip. Uh, Okay. Um, No, no new reviews. Shit. We haven't had a review left on this show since May, people. All right. Come on. Chop, chop. It's now September. Yeah. June, July, August, September, like That's four months, months, no reviews, right. four months, even we're even into the actual Renaissance now and there's still no reviews. So 
My- Pick, lift your game, people. <laughs> lift your game. There better be a review before my birthday, which is September 21st. Yeah. So I will fucking yeah. lose it. All right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you will lose it. Um, what I will do, though, yeah. is um, I will read uh, out a list of our recent subscribers. Um, yeah. Thank them. And these are, the, quite frankly, the people that should be uh, um, leaving reviews. Yeah, uh, The new subscribers. You, you know, you catch up and when you hear this and leave us a review if you haven't already. Um Okay, so recent subscribers are um, Kieran Brandt Sordi, uh, Andrew Maxim, Christopher Rittenius, Angelo Iaconetti, Andre Klestoff, Alex Lee, Mark Zocco, as opposed to Mark Zuckerberg, right, uh, Joe Miller, Matthew Conrad, Barry McCarthy, Jordan Cherovich, Jonathan Sanders, James Arnold, Stephen Bustamente. Stephen just retired. Uh, just retired. Yeah. Congratulations, buddy. May you enjoy your retirement. Um, Cohen Cockshorn. Um, no. no. <laughs> not going to touch no. that. Alexandre Mattioli. Uh, Hilton Meyer. Ben Anthony. Steve Garling. Reed Latrail. Uh, Ratrail. Riley? Latrail? Latrail. I'll go with yeah. that. Uh, Michaelis Oikonomakis. Uh, Mo Ramanuk, Romaniuk, Mo Romaniuk. Like I'm going to go with that. Grayson Hart, Matthew Shank, Doug Onsi, Nicholas Lord, Steve Thiel, Derek Gross, and Aaron Hernandez. So Thank they're you. our recent subscribers. Thank you for joining the yeah. show, folks. Leave us a fucking review. Get a coffee mug about <laughs> maybe something about rape. Um, lucky. Do you want? Yeah. Do you want to go out with? Um, Eastbound and down for Burt Reynolds. Not that we have to. Eastbound and down, loaded up and trucking. Are we going to do what they say can be done? We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. I'm eastbound, just like no bandit run. Keep your foot hard on the pedal. Let it all hang out cause we gotta run to pick The boys are thirsty in Atlanta And there's beer in Texarkana And we'll bring it back no matter what it takes Eastbound and down, loaded up and trucking Are we gonna do what they say can't be done? 